go. Sniper arrow on the guard. It strikes true. The guard drops. I move to the doorway. Detect traps. None detected. I enter. Left flank. Right. One hobgoblin facing east. Backstab. Double damage. Critical hit. He's dead. Footsteps behind the door to the north. I notch two arrows. I climb the walls to get above the door. Five goblins enter from the north. I fire. Both arrows hit. Cleave. You kill one and wound another. I drop on the last one and grapple. You got hold of him. This one is for Crouton. With his dying breath, he utters, The Dark Lord. We'll kill you all. Wait, these things can talk? I want two taken alive. I want to try something. This is Siskoid hosting another episode of Let's Roll, the show where we discuss various role-playing games with guests and fellow tabletop gamers. And this episode follows from episodes two and six where we discussed our GURPS Shift World campaign. That campaign started in the Old West, migrated to GURPS AutoDuel, and for the next couple chapters, used GURPS Mars and GURPS Ice Age. So I've invited the same two players to talk about that phase of the story with me, Daniel Poutouellet. Hey, that's me. And Alexandre Bebert. Eber. Yeah, people say, oh, not those guys again. Put and Beb. You may remember them as Ace and Willie J. Spade. Through the process of podcasting about it, you heard us revive the flame. And since we last spoke publicly, we have restarted that campaign. Woohoo! Yeah! After years of begging. Years of begging? I, I never actually... I had too much anxiety to actually approach you with the begging, but I was begging like ah! in my own little world. Uh, well, you should have done it sooner, but it doesn't matter. We're doing it now. Also at a time when we're more used to doing it online, etc. So maybe in the past it would have been more difficult or less obvious. But uh, to recap this whole Shift World idea, if this is the first time you hear of it, you were just drawn to GURPS Ice Age, but not the other episodes, somehow. Let's just say that the the way that this works, the characters started out as uh, cowboys in the Old West, but then something happened, there was a shift of perception, and suddenly they found themselves in a post-apocalyptic future, driving cars instead of riding horses. Everybody else thought this was normal, did not remember their Old West existence, but these characters did. They were shifters. There was something different about them, and it's been a mystery that's been held over the heads of the players since the early 2000s, when we stopped playing. Wow. And just now, we're, we're getting to some of those reveals in, in the campaign as we continue it. Uh, so in this case, after we, we finished the GURPS uh, auto-duel section of it, there was another shift. You know, this was going to be a, a constant where people would have to go back uh, to the, their, their character sheets, rework the characters a little bit, and they, they would find themselves in a new world with all the sets of memories from the past, remembering that they used to be cowboys, remembering that they used to be auto-duelers, and all their lives going back, they remembered everything, but in different versions, sort of a head trip. And the next shift was uh, GURPS Mars. Now, I want to talk a little bit about GURPS Mars, the book published by Steve Jackson Games, of course. GURPS published a few source books that feature multiple versions of the same setting. So they did it with Atlantis and with Robin Hood, and they did it with GURPS Mars. Writer James L. Cambius covers the Red Planet in reality, 
and in myth and fiction. And he provides four different Martian settings. Domed Mars, which is very hard science fiction. Terraformed Mars, a further future campaign. Super Science Mars, which is War of the Worlds, Mars Attacks. And Dying Mars, which would be the John Carter, Barsoom stories. Canals and aliens, whatever. So I chose to use Domed Mars as the primary, but as we'll see, I ended up at least touching on the others through a conceit of mine. So, you know, I shared the PDF of the book with you guys. There's a weird layout error in this. The splash page art for Super Science Mars and Dying Mars have been inverted. Buyer beware. I mean, it's just it's just a very strange. Every time I try to flip to the right chapter, I always screw it up. And there's only about 20 pages of each setting so to speak, but domed Mars is so close to reality that it gets all the pages about the real Mars as a bonus, I feel, uh, which is probably why I went to that, you know, for this story. And uh, for the other settings, if you want to experience this, you may want other books to help fill out the universe, uh, Space 1889 or Planet Krishna for Dying Mars, uh, GURPS Atomic Horror for... Mars, you know, with the Ice Warriors. And I know you don't have, we've talked about this before, you don't have a lot of memory uh, of this particular shift, this particular chapter. Yeah, now, I think that has something to do with, we maybe did not play a lot of sessions in GURPS Mars. I feel like there was really just like, you know, the initial, all right, you're getting used to the shift. And then there was like one mission and it was done. But I think that's the main reason why I don't remember that much. Like I was reading over our notes and there were a few things that came back to mind. But yeah, I don't have a lot of memories about GURPS Mars. It's the most easiest part of the game we've played so far for me. I got correct memory of what's coming up next. But as for Mars, the only thing that comes to my mind is that the only comparison I add to it is uh, the old Zach McCracken game I used to play. Okay. <laughs> to me, the transition was a bit natural in that uh, you were already playing Frontiersman. The Old West, Auto Duel, that was all very frontier. And so Mars, uh, especially like a, a Mars that has just started to be colonized, not terraformed at all, that felt also like the frontier and the desert. And, you know, it's, it's sort of, even though our, our old West campaign was it was in Wyoming, so it's not the desert or anything, but it, it had that sort of feel of being on the frontier, except it's the final frontier, you know, in, in that sense. And I think I may, like, to me, this was perhaps more in tune with my own interests than the players, to which I would say, GM beware. You know, because I'm so interested in the space program and things like From the Earth to the Moon, the HBO series, all this sort of stuff at that time, I remember I was really into it, that doing a very hard SF, what would it really be like to be on Mars? What would that science be like in the very near future? And uh, that's my interest and not yours. So maybe I had greater hopes for that than actually transpired. But you're right. I, it did not last long. We didn't stay there for a long time. And that may or may not be because of player interest. You know, I, let's let's move on if it doesn't really spark the imagination. GMs beware, but also Elon Musk beware. Yeah. <laughs> you might also have a rude awakening. <laughs> I feel like we didn't do as much character building during this one. Maybe that's why it's it's hard to remember because I can think of like one moment where like, I believe it was during Mars where we had like a, a drinking contest in a bar and I 
went with the idea that when my character was drunk, he was having a hard time remembering which ship he was currently in. So he was in Mars and he would say stuff like, I need to go take care of my horse outside, which made no sense. But in his mind, it did. But like, that's the only character building moment that I remember from the shift. Even when you look at the character sheets, and we'll include the character sheets as usual at fireandwaterpodcast.com in the image gallery. Uh, And you'll see how the characters stand up in that setting. Basically, you can see the evolution of these character sheets as time goes by. Looking back at these sheets, anything uh, come to mind as to... The challenges for me, what that's does the whole point. That was not really a challenge because it was not a setback, but it was a, a flashback from the first installment, the Old West one, like you mentioned earlier. Uh, Willie G was still a minor prospector. Uh, he was like back to his roots. So, so, so when uh, Put comes in and say, "Well, there was not much of a character development." This is probably why we don't remember it so much because we didn't have to do that much more to play the character uh, while we were in mars because it was really something we knew about and maybe that's where it all begins to to be easy for us because we were still playing the spades but now in space on mars so yeah to me it was Probably not so different than Old West to play it. And in the case of Ace, I was looking at the character sheet, and it looks basically the same as it still does now. I think at one point I really started building Ace with attributes that would be universal and easy to adapt from shift to shift. And I stopped trying to see him in terms of like small details, like playing cards and stuff. And and instead of seeing him like being attached to playing cards, he'd be just attached to gambling in any kind of way. So I'm looking at the character sheet and like other than this coffee addiction, everything else seems to be still be on my character sheet so not a lot of changes instead of driving a car i drive mars rovers which i think it's it's fun (laughs) um that's a cute part of it and uh yeah i feel like switching to mars from auto duo was such a smooth transition that i think Bebao might be right that might be one of the reasons why we don't remember much about it because it wasn't such a culture shock yeah right a mechanic is still a mechanic you know it's like it's it's like it's the same date but uh in one a version of history, society collapsed, and city-states, and, and the death race 2000. And then in the other version of history, society went to the stars and, you know, starting to colonize the solar system. But it's still kind of the same tech level. Yeah, I think maybe if we would have taken more time in character, in game, to talk about the new history, and maybe we did in and it's just like, as you mentioned, not necessarily in my interest. So that might not be why I really remember it. But yeah, I guess it just feels like a continuation from Auto Duel for me. It's just like, oh, we're on a different planet. Okay. <laughs> but it's, yeah. it's actually still the same thing going on. Yeah. The whole point for me was really introducing the idea of the shift storm, which is not the original name. <laughs> but the greater current name the better pun yeah my notes all call it like hiccups every time there was to be a shift it would feel like a, a reality would hiccup and then so i just called it a sort of unstable shift or something like that i guess maybe in torg which is another game uh, they have reality storms so if if we could take that idea and adapt it shift storm becomes a thing and what a shift storm is it's like when reality starts shifting 
from scene to scene or even second to second, which is really an unstable shift. So Mars was supposed to be unstable. The whole point for me wasn't to discover Mars in the near future or anything. It really was, okay, this book has many versions of Mars. I want to use them all and bring in this concept of the shift storm where as, as soon as you left the dome to go on this mission to recover a, uh, a NASA probe that had gone wrong, as they do, suddenly, you know, it's like, okay, this scene, is, it's like that. But then did you just notice a flying saucer in the sky? And things like that would, where reality would always be somewhat shifting and you could do, like, this scene is going to be in the near future. This scene is going to be on Dying Mars where, you know, you guys are, have bronze skin and are traveling the canals in a boat. And then this scene, your insects, you know, your Mars attacks or War of the Worlds Martians. And it would shift like that continually until the climax, which was every round of that battle with the probe slash robot slash monster slash, you know, you, you find a new life form in a cave is sort of the end of this adventure. The feeling was, it was like if we were in a toilet bowl slush of Mars. You know, everything was mixed up. And every time we shifted, we had to do a role also just to, to realize where we were. And sometimes we were really lost in translation. I remember that kind of clearly. So so it was really tough for us to, you know, just realize where we were at and where should we go. And, you know, and all of this technicality of that shift storm that took place was very hard for us to, to follow or understand while we were trying to just understand the whole concept of shifting, which we'll still do. The shift storm for me was like such a cool concept. Like when it happened, I remember thinking like, oh, this was a really good idea that Mike came up with where every round or, or every few minutes we would be going through different shifts. It was just a really cool experience. And it was it was a really fun delve into the idea that one setting, like even if we were always on Mars at around the same time, one setting could have a lot of different versions. And it, it just opens up your mind to the idea that like role playing doesn't have to be just one <laughs> version of fantasy, right? Just yeah. that any setting that you like can theoretically have a lot of different worlds to explore i just watched spider-man into the spider-verse this morning and so i'm super into <laughs> multiverse stuff right now by the way one of the best probably the best superhero movie ever made and one of the most beautiful cartoons i've ever seen but anyways i'm getting off topic yeah the shift storm was a lot of fun it was really cool and i think it's super interesting that you say mike that you used mars just to be able to introduce a shift storm because I was reading the author's notes on GURPS Mars, and he had made that book just as an excuse to be able to do research on different versions of Mars. So in a way, his original intention with the book became also your intention with it. So I just think it's kind of copacetic the way that kind of happened. Fun fact. Well, at the same time, I was inspired by those notes because at the time I was you know, a steady reader of Pyramid Magazine online, Pyramid Online. 
which is, is still uh, available. There's a lot of articles on there at the Steve Jackson Games uh, website. That book came out. I bought the book at the time, I think, because the, the date seems right to me. And then I saw the notes uh, online. Basically, what he'd done is put an entire adventure on there. There wasn't any room for it in the book itself. The sample adventure that Cambius put on there was really for all four versions so it, it was all the, the same plot. You can see how it fits the shift world idea. It's all the same plot, but mm -hmm. completely different worlds. And so in one version of it, the NASA probe becomes Red Mars guerrillas, becomes a rogue war tripod, becomes warband wizards. And then in two of those versions, the PCs are actually non-human, which would be, I think it's the only time you were ever not human was in that moment, possibly. Yeah. Yeah, in the rapid switching rounds, at least. So so basically, it was giving me exactly what I needed to do the shifts and all the stats were already there. So it seemed perfect to me. It may be how I came up with the shift storm idea, which I would reuse when uh, you guys went to Atlantis later, because Atlantis is also built like that as a book with, you know, is it Aquaman's Atlantis? Is it uh, ancient Atlantis, Arion's Atlantis? For, for DC Comics readers, that's going to make sense. <laughs> so what Atlantis is it? You know, the, the true history Greek Atlantis that Plato was talking about? And so you could use all those versions in the same way. Also, as part of the puzzle of what shifting is, this told you that, I don't know, is I don't know what that told you, but the fact that shifts could be unstable, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean for the physics of it? What does that mean for the, is there something or someone screwing around with it, corrupting it. Yeah, reading the synopsis of our sessions again yesterday made me realize that this shift storm was meant to be a huge clue that we never picked up on <laughs> in, terms, in terms of how shifts work. And now that we are actively really thinking about how shifts work, I'm thinking about this again and I'm still thinking like, oh, there's something here that I'm missing. Like it's at the tip of my tongue and I can't quite figure it out. But yeah, just the idea that shifting can be unstable like that, that's an important variable that we have not been considering in our more recent philosophical discussions about what shifting is. So yeah. I'm going to, I noticed, I just want you to know, Mike, I noticed now I'm, I'm paying attention. The most important part is we've been 20 years clueless. But also I've been <laughs> 20 years without thinking about it. So are my answers going to be consistent with whatever I had planned back then? Because <laughs> I'm not well, sure. Well, <laughs> they better be. Well, we'll make it work. And so finally, let's talk a little bit about the soundtrack for this. Because again, I think it's one of the least memorable. I shouldn't have made so many choices, song choices, since we're, we weren't going to stay there for a long time. There was one choice. I'm going to play everything from the Pixies. That was the choice. <laughs> True. Uh, again... My own interests and obsessions, not necessarily yeah. the players. All the songs, except for the main theme, which was the Total Recall soundtrack. And again, I'm going to put the uh, link to a YouTube playlist on the website at the Image Gallery. So if people want to listen to the soundtrack, they can. And in the notes, you'll see you know, what theme goes with what and with which character. But uh, there's a Total Recall soundtrack is the main theme. And all, all the songs are from the Pixies' last uh, album, Trompe le Monde, which has many songs about Mars. So it seemed natural to me, but I'm a Pixies fan and, and listener. And we just didn't stay long enough in the shift to make these songs pop or be memorable in the yeah. same way that we could say it, it was true of volume one, you know, the, the first two shifts. But as you said, this was a GM's session. 
definitely because it was <laughs> all about what you like and and, and we love the way that that you shared it is just that may not have connected as you wished i'll say that i remember at least three of the pixies songs but i can't remember if i remember them because of shift world or just because i heard pixies songs somewhere else but i definitely do remember like at least three of these songs out of four or five that's good i think you'll have more memories of gurps ice age because it was such a departure i think making it like you said it's like it's if the shift is too close to the same reality maybe gets all muddled what happened in which but when there's a big shift literally so ice age you know we'll take a short promo break and we'll be right back with well more caveman action that you can shake a stick at i'm mike gillis and i'm casey doran and we want to ask you an important question are you sick and tired of other panel discussion shows wasting your time droning on and on about foreign policy economics and human rights Or do you want to hear conversations about things that actually matter? We host a podcast called Radio vs. the Martians. Every month we gather a panel of our nation's finest minds and plunge a rusty prison shank into the heart of tough questions that have an impact on the lives of real people like you. Like, are drivers required to pull over for the Ghostbusters? Is the United Federation of Planets actually an oppressive dictatorship run by guidance counselors? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger secretly a genius? And are we being mean when we laugh at movies that are so bad they're good? So write your congressman and let them know that Radio vs. the Martians is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on RadioVsTheMartians.com. So GURPS Ice Age is a pretty early GURPS source book, 1989, uh, but in 1996, it was integrated into GURPS Dinosaurs as a large appendix. It loses the adventure and the uh, the cool Donna Barr art. Indie comics fans may remember her series like Stins and Desert Peach. Well, she did the art on a couple of GURPS books, and uh, it was written by Kirk Wilson Tate. Uh, this is a thin 64-page volume, has everything you need to play cavemen. Uh, whether scientifically accurate, with shamanic magic, with dinosaurs thrown in. Uh, there's even a short section on Flintstones-like play, <laughs> and it includes a sample adventure, so it felt real easy to include this one in Shift World. I just adapted that adventure, really. Cavemen, uh, let's talk about the transition. A quick look at the character sheets. Like, this really does change the characters. <laughs> Definitely yeah. for me. Yeah, I was surprised that Willie J did not transform into a acorn-obsessed squirrel with two big buck teeth. I thought that's what Ice Age was all about. I was really disappointed yeah. that we were not the Pixar version. That did not exist yet, and it's not Pixar. <laughs> all <laughs> right, it's DreamWorks. Pixar, or, yeah, anyway. I don't think it existed, no. But that's how I picture hit Willie J now. That's how okay. I picture Willie J now. No, but the transition was interesting because like, my character was all about charm and dexterity and using firearms and all of a sudden i was a caveman where charm was not invented (laughs) yet (laughs) neither were firearms my character was a lightning calculator and yet we lived in a world where numbers did not yet exist really so discussing what it would mean to be a lightning calculator as a caveman was interesting. It was like, oh, you can count up to 10 instead of just five. <laughs> I think that's the solution we came up with. And and that was fun. And also, what does it mean to be charismatic in a world where there isn't really a charismatic game invented in society do you know what i mean by that like i think there's charisma which is like leadership and playing the alpha or whatever yeah but there's no 
there's no social graces. Exactly. That's what I mean by charismatic yeah. game. The social graces, politeness, respect, that kind of stuff. So it was a lot of fun. And I and you're right, I do have a lot more memories of GURPS Ice Age. And I think it has a lot to do with reimagining the character what is a spade in this new world where he uh, most of his strengths should not exist yet that was a lot of fun for me as for uh, willie j which has transformed to ash Gataway, <laughs> which was a funny name and what was absurd with my character is that most of the time willie j would smell bad but in ice age actually Smell was an obsession. I had to smell good, but good in a high sage way, which was bad. <laughs> it was just that switch in, in the mind of everybody and, and mostly myself was just something to work with, with fun. You know, hilarity ensued probably a lot with all of our characters because we were Neanderthals. <laughs> Yeah, not even Cro-Magnon. No. So it meant that you were not Homo sapiens, you were Neanderthals, and that made it even more primitive in a way. And for you, your character was the techie. Yeah. He was the engineer of the group. And suddenly, well, it just means you're good at uh, shaping stones and that, you know, making arrowheads or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Very uh, Etsy. <laughs> <laughs> but it was all the, the adaptation of... Even the NPCs, it was so funny even to pronounce. The main villain that was dark became dark. <laughs> you know, just having us you know, pronounce it, we had probably some giggles. The rest is a survival at its best because caves sometimes having fire. Speaking of NPCs, Ace's relationship with Simon was interesting at that time, I remember too, because he was starting, before we shifted to Ice Age, Ace was really transitioning from being a player to being like this guy interested in only one woman and being in love with her and being monogamous. And then we switched to Ice Age where monogamy doesn't exist yet. It's not a concept that makes sense. And that really made for an interesting relationship with Simone too. It was like, if I remember correctly, she was like the girl that I had sex with more often than the others or something like that. So yeah, Ice Age really changed the dynamics of the game quite a bit and adapting to these was the most fun. I felt this again later on. Again, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves too much, but some of the recent shifts had the same kind of feeling for me, and um, I really love exploring shifts when they are drastically different from what we were in. One of my favorite cartoons when I was young was Captain Caveman, so <laughs> I guess I based a lot of my role-playing into that goofy, hero-ish guy, because it was so enjoyable. Picturing myself playing as Captain Caveman without being able to be a real superhero, but just a normal hunter trying to uh, survive in this ice age. Very different touchstones from person to person. Because like you're going Captain Caveman, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm a fan of Quest for Fire and um, uh, you know, Walking with the Cavemen and that, that kind of like real world mm -hmm. scientific look at the ice age we're not all coming from it the same way but i remember etienne also being a fan of quest for fire like he, he oh, introduced yes. it to me so i i'm pretty sure he had that in mind as well 
when we were playing it. What was Jonathan doing in Ice Age? What was his main storyline going through? I can't remember. So instead of a, a like, you all had like a, a like a First Nations kind of sounding name, and of course you wanted to be called Gub, which is your equivalent of Ace for that. He was called I'm going to translate it, but he was called Bear. So he had like an animal name, and he was he had shamanistic powers because he was always with Jonathan. That character was raised outside the family unit by something other. So he was raised by the bear tribe instead of the wolf tribe that which you were part of and uh, became a shaman, learned the ways of the shaman and then something happens to his tribe and then he eventually rejoins the brothers. That was like the backstory. Whatever happens, that's the backstory, no matter what. It's just what are those others uh you know a native american tribe and originally are they nomads of some kind are they elves are they whatever so in this case it was just from another tribe but he had the shamanistic power so if i look at his character sheet you know he's got spells he can do some healing he can do uh he has death visions and that and that sort of ties into what he was doing already in the old west so even though we're progressing there's always like a look back at how can we readapt some of the old stories some of the old elements and bring them back into this reality you know, so that it's like more continuous. That was sort of his thing. And I think I remember the main storyline having a lot of spiritual stuff going on. Like we had yeah. to bury animals to appease spirits and stuff like that. So yep. that fit really well in. And that's, I think that's a direction that I did not expect Ice Age to take. And I was very happy to see that because we basically like were slowly developing what religion would become through our actions. And I thought that was really interesting. Because you're on the cusp of, okay, at what point does humanity start burying its dead, start having rituals? What makes you sentient? What makes you grow up from, from the animal into the a person? <laughs> and so... These are some of the elements, you know, that... Uh, what makes you stop clubbing the woman you love to bring her home? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. That kind so of stuff. You, had, you had to interpret the primitive mind. So that was the challenge in this. As far as soundtrack, it was just like drum beats and, you know, I took actual bands. And that's also going to... You're going to find those tracks in the playlist. I put them all together. This actually looped back to my very first use of soundtracks because that first drum beat track is one I used in the first Dream Park game we ever played. And uh, it's the very same song. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I definitely yeah. recognize the songs. I, I listened to the playlist and the two Ice Age songs I remember very clearly. I must have been listening because whenever you would give us CDs of the soundtracks, I would play them in my car yeah. back when cars had CD players. And mine still does. <laughs> so does mine, actually. But yeah, uh, listening, I, I must have listened to those songs a few times because I, I remember them very vividly but i did not know that you had used them in dream park as well but it makes sense they're very general atmospheric songs yeah 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 and that very first game that we played and put was there um and we talked about it actually in when we discussed dream park as a game but that was my first use of soundtrack and it was all in a cassette you know i would, I would tape <laughs> the songs on a cassette back to back uh, and then have to rewind and replay whatever but that game also had dinosaurs it had dinosaurs well you say also but this one didn't have dinosaurs <laughs> you know i say oh, it didn't yeah, use dinosaurs. that's a good point yeah <laughs> but the idea of dinosaurs was there right there was a voodoo ritual and it raised dinosaur zombies and that was the thing so those drum beats that you kept hearing that were always in the background in that dream park game that's the first track here that that's the main theme for Shift World Ice Age. So I just wanted to say that. But the theme between uh, what, what really brings Mars and Ice Age 
together is the theme that Babau mentioned, survival. Yeah. Definitely. This is survivalist fiction where the environment is the antagonist as much as any villain or monster or animal. And, and all these shifts are about the frontier and all. They're all about surviving in uncertain times and environments. So I do not remember how difficult it was, but since our the first installment in Old West, we knew that environment could be lethal to us if we didn't pay attention if we did stupid stuff go all leroy jenkins on something we would die and being in ice age and in in on mars i think we were extra careful of every move we did because we had to and we knew that the game could overcome us that's the general feeling i had from this time yeah did we even see we saw dark like at the very end of this shift right but the rest of the whole shift in ice age there was like no clear villain as you said the villain was the environment it was like we had we were a nomadic race if i remember correctly dark was a shaman right something yeah. like that it's sort of the yeah he was like the tribe leader as the shaman and you confront him during this shift, and uh, he shows his hand, this is how it ended. By admitting he killed your parents, yeah. uh, as well as hinting that he too is shifting. So th this was, at the very end of this, he said things that you went, hey, we know so little as Neanderthals. Mm -hmm. You should not know to reference whatever. Something from, you know, nominal future, but in the past. So it seemed like he was shifting as well. And he also, you, you made the villain reveal, not his plan, but some of his secrets. Yeah. And uh, that's when he went from ambiguous, nefarious character to, no, no, he's our arch enemy. Yeah. And, and that was the major plot twist for all of us, because now we knew that we had to go for him. Now we knew that, you know, we had to understand and he had some answers we didn't have. Yeah, he also mentioned that he thought he had wiped out all of us. Like, I don't know if he used the word race or not, but uh, he made it very clear that it wasn't just It wasn't just a thing that we three brothers were doing the shifting. Like there was a whole group collection of people who could shift and they had all been wiped out by dark. So that was another big clue for us. But going back to the idea of the setting as the antagonist, I really like that idea. I feel like instead of always having an evil sorcerer or an evil king or, or despot or something, just the idea that you are fighting against life itself mm -hmm. can really put things into perspective for characters and really help develop certain grit for the characters and as well really r help round them out so i really like that idea i feel like a lot more gms should put that into their bag ideas on on how to make the setting itself be an important discussion for the characters what to do about the setting and with that being said now that we are where we are in the game it's a good reminder to have <laughs> because you know you never know when the environment was gonna is gonna come up and screw us you know which it did uh, which it did <laughs> it's just that it prepared us probably to to what's coming on and in a good way, in the best way possible, because we still have to have that awareness of everything around us. I think horror games 
do a really good job of paying attention to details in the setting to set the mood. Stuff like ad, like soundtrack can be really important, but also ambience like of the room you're in. But then inside the story as well, like just description, like small details you can add to the description of a scene that just make it that much more horrific. And I think there's a lot to learn from horror games in general for inspiring GMs. Like when you say horror games, though, you don't talk like games like atmospheres on VHS and stuff like real horror games, right? Yeah, I, I mean, horror, <laughs> horror role playing games, Cthulhu and the like. <laughs> Speaking of atmosphere, they're remaking it this year. I saw really jumping on the nostalgia hype. Yeah, I, I played a lot of that. My sisters went to that. We're into that. And they always needed another player. But that's for another story. <laughs> um, so at the end of this, you know, you fought the environment, beginnings of not quite civilization, but you know what I mean. You're figuring this out and fighting against the impulses of being a caveman and, and not having all the mental processes that you, we all take for granted. And then at the end, reveal the arch enemy. And as you go to fight him, there is a shift which we'll cover in our next installment in two or three, three or four episodes time. Let's just say it's a very different, like for four shifts in a row, we've basically been, yes, fighting the environment and very nitty gritty and very realistic and people fearing for their lives and being careful what they do. And then we go into something hugely cinematic where that's not so much a concern. Yeah. And <laughs> strap your seed belts. It's going to be epic. I love The last shift. I love that so much. It was fun, and I believe, as we mentioned earlier on, these uh, these two, we especially Mars, were more into your your interests. The next ship we're, we're going to talk about in a future episode. It was uh, really more for the players, I believe, especially for uh, Etienne and Put. They were more into it than me, but I was still into it, and I. I cannot wait to talk about it. I will say that I would play Ice Age again anytime. I of course. loved playing Definitely. Ice Age. It was a great setting. Yeah. Um, as much as it, I did not necessarily think it would be when I was adapting my character, I ended up really liking it. I thought it was a lot of fun and an interesting challenge. So I would play Ice Age again anytime. Yeah, it sounds like there's no real opportunity for adventure. It's like we're just surviving and it's like, let's go hunting. What is this going to be like? But films like Quest for Fire show us one way to do it, like they go for the fire and all the adventures that they have and they're, they touch upon elements of, you know, they're growing their own culture through their encounters. Uh, that's one way to do it. Uh, and certainly like the way we did it, what we don't know is the actual culture back then and different tribes probably had different cultures. And so bringing it closer to something that we recognize tribal cultures in our own fairly recent history, whether it's you know, the Native American culture or certain African cultures, or we can sort of understand how these, I mean, they were human beings back then. Yeah. Can bring that in, that sort of religion or whatever to create impetus for adventure in the same way that if we were playing, you know, in more recent times with these sort of animistic cultures. I really like the idea of exploring what humanity is by living through a story of what it was to be human before humanity existed if that makes any sense like what we define ourselves 
when we define humanity now and what it is to be human, we often say, we ask the question, what do we have more than the animals do? But then you go and play Ice Age where humanity is basically just like an animal and it just like makes you think all over again what it really means to be human and where we come from. I thought that was just like a really interesting experience to go through. Yeah, it gives you perspective. I, I feel like this is one of my favorite GURPS books. GURPS Ice Age, it, it evokes something that I found was so rarely done in role-playing. There is something to it, and to bring it down to the essentials. Having GURPS doing those kind of books opens up the, the opportunity to do it. And that's a great use of it, actually. You know, having a shift there, you know, being able to live it in a character, you know, not for a long time, but just just enough to, to have a taste. That's what I love about the system of, you know, the GURBS games uh, within the shift world universe. That is the, probably the best mix we can have because we can have the taste of every single part of the known gaming universe in little doses. And that's great. That's that's awesome. And of course, if uh, you think it's too limiting, be Raquel Welsh. <laughs> Have dinosaurs. Yeah. A million BC. You know, the book lets you do all of that, especially if you get the current version. The real better book is Ice Age itself, even though it's older and maybe harder to find because it does have that adventure and get, really gives you a primer on what you would do with this setting. And the art is generally better. If you can only find GURPS dinosaurs, then you get all the dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals from the dawn of time to the Ice Age. So you may be inspired to, to mix it up, you know, and create like a, a fake prehistory. Maybe it's all in a valley somewhere that we don't know about. So there you go, GURPS Mars, GURPS Ice Age. I want to thank my guests, Ace and Willie, or as they are sometimes only sometimes known, Put and Beb. I'll let you go back to the wilderness, guys. Thank you. Uh, thank you thank for having us. I'm going to go watch more Spider-Man now. We should all. And I'll be back after the break with Game Master advice and your feedback on our previous episode. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The time is out of joint. The year is 1994 or 1944 or maybe... 2994, time is under threat, and history is falling apart. Who will survive this crisis, and how will history be changed for those that do? Zero Hour Strikes takes you back to that DC Comics crossover and covers the entire story, issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in, as the DC Universe goes down to zero. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes, Zero Hour Strikes, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Legion. If I were Dungeon Master, I'd have it made. What an interesting proposition. Very well, I shall give you all my power to use as you will. There's an old adage in role-playing that no matter how much you prepare, your players will surprise you and do something you never thought of. So, why doesn't it go both ways? If you're a Game Master, you'll have experienced this you'll have experienced this. You wrote, or perhaps improvised, the plot, the characters, all the twists and turns, and some player will chime in to say, oh, it's just like whatever movie. They'll predict the 11th hour twist, and so on. Now, some time ago, one of our listeners, Boston Moss, asked how you can keep throwing players curves when you've known them for decades, and you and they know how each other think, right? And I wonder... 
despite the fact that we just talked about some WTF moments, I wonder if that's exactly it. If your plots are predictable in and of themselves, that's to say cliches or similar structures that recur within the canon of your games, then yes, the players clue in too early because they know how you think, or rather, you've taken them down this road before. And that's on you. I'm thinking of the unit era of Doctor Who, where for a while most plots had the master hidden in plain sight, usually with a name that meant master or was an anagram of it. Well, if that were a role-playing game, the players might well have started looking for an, an evil maître d at the start of every adventure. It's a sign that you're repeating yourself. If the players predict your plot because it's too similar to a movie's or a book's or a comic's, that's another matter. The most disheartening thing is when you actually did steal from a particular movie you thought the players hadn't seen and one of them has and calls you on it. It's okay to take inspiration from other media, but you do have to be careful. With some players, it's almost unavoidable that they'll recognize the source material. But the similarities might also be coincidental. Now face it, when you're dealing with an episodic genre serial with multiple leads who are expected to survive to the next chapter, you can't tell any story, nor pull off any twist. Throw in the genre tropes that are expected of any given game world, and game sessions become more and more predictable. It's like being mad when a rom-com ends with the characters getting together because you saw it coming. That's what happens in these kinds of stories, and it's silly to think otherwise. Well, the same is true of a dungeon delve or whatever. You probably know the story beats, but it's about the journey, not the destination, or its pit stops. Well, given that context, can you still make your games surprising? I've got four pieces of advice. First, follow your players. If your imagination is solely responsible for what happens, give or take the PC's reactions, that vision may, over time, become easy to decode. Your proclivities are on show every session. Your stock NPCs, your patented plot twists, uh, and your interests and your obsessions. I'm a big believer in letting the players dictate at least some of the setting. Say we enter one's old family home. Let the player describe it. Pick up on the details, especially the ones you wouldn't have thought of, and integrate them into the larger story. For example, if they mention a portrait of an ancestral knight, have that knight haunt the place. The clock tower might be a great place for a final battle when the ghost brigands slain by the ghost knight lay siege to the house. Uh, in more episodic games, I also like to run a diceless teaser. We've talked about this before, where the heroes are finishing up a mission before we actually start the night's scenario. They get to describe their climatic fight with a demonic yeti and, and, you know, subsequent escape from their mountain stronghold without rules interference. The GM can throw in an idea here and there, but the setup might be provided by the players and might give the GM ideas for returning foes or lasting consequences. And even if it doesn't, that was a nice 15-minute free-flowing scene where the action could be totally surprising, where the players couldn't fault the GM for being cliched or redundant because they were in charge. DC Heroes RPG uh, allows players to suggest their own subplots, and these can bloom into adventures you would not have personally engineered later. Anytime you give the players control, you will have to adapt and think outside the box. Guess what? The box is where your crutches and cliches are. Getting out does your game mastering a lot of good. Second, play with the expectations you created. Whether it's your own cliches or the genres, players will expect certain things from whatever you've set up. Maybe you did it accidentally. Maybe you did it on purpose. 
Regardless, when players realize what's going on ahead of their characters, because of real-world knowledge, that's the best time to throw a curveball, whether it's planned or improvised. Because if they just guess the plot, it may be time to throw it out. I think the James Bond 007 RPG adventures, great example of how to do it. Uh, and they're beautiful products if you ever get a chance to grab one. Each is based on a Bond novel slash movie and will seem entirely familiar in terms of locations, characters, and action set pieces. But if there was a mystery to figure out, like who is Mr. Big, or a climactic action beat, like where the final battle occurs, they change things up. People Bond could trust turn out to be enemies and maybe vice versa. So do the same with your games if the players have deduced and are already hemming and hawing about your pet villain escaping at the end. Let them capture him, but it's all part of his plan for the next session. If they recognize your plot from a Star Trek episode, introduce a crucial change. Trelane next hands down his pet Starfleet officers to his kids, who are the Q Continuum, and who have very different ideas. Spitballing here. Go against your instincts. If your natural inclination would be A, try to think of the exact opposite, and do Z. Challenge yourself. And it will challenge the players who think they have you figured out. My third piece of advice is that surprise is in the details. If we accept that RPGs are trapped in certain genre media tropes, what makes a session memorable isn't the plot so much as the way its stock elements are treated. We know the players have to receive the mission at the start of the adventure, but does it have to be from a hooded character in ye old local inn? What if everybody shuns them in there, and it happens when they walk out into the alley? Maybe when they've had an ale too many? What if there's a dead drop where they get their orders, one that's being watched? Make the local village worship some strange religion to add flavor to every normally innocuous interaction, like the boring shopping for supplies some players insist on role-playing. Collapse the door to the dungeon entrance and have the characters access it through an old well. Get rid of the rats in the sewers and replace them with miniature albino crocodiles. Werewolves are boring. Were frogs are awesome. Tweak every location, character, and challenge to push it away from the expected, and even if the basic structure of the adventure is well-worn, the story will seem original. And finally, let's talk about one-shots. I've played a lot of one-shots, basically thanks to the Dream Park RPG, which we've talked about on this show before. But any game can be used for a one-off story, which may last a single session or even several, where the characters and the world are essentially disposable. This is where you can really surprise players because, A, they haven't lived in that world for X number of sessions and don't know what to expect, and B, anything can be destroyed and anyone can die, including the PCs. It's basically moving from the television format that most RPGs adopt, the serial, to the movie format. And while there are twists in TV shows, you know the stars are going to make it and usually stay on the side of good, etc. A movie, on the other hand, could go differently, and on a sour note, or on a dance number. Surprises you would never dare pull in a campaign suddenly become viable and interesting. As much for the GM as for the players. They might more willingly sacrifice their lives if there's no tomorrow, for example. In one-shot adventures, I've let players save the world, but it left them stranded on the moon with air running out. Credits. I've killed them in the opening minutes, only to surprise them with an adventure where they played ghosts. I've set up a world where cavemen have superpowers and fight dinosaurs, which wouldn't have been something they would have played week in, week out. The setup itself was the curveball. And if you think you're too involved in a campaign, there's really nothing wrong, and perhaps everything right, 
with having one session where the players take on different roles to tell a side story in that same world. Maybe the devastated kingdom they just left, or the legend that took place long ago and that you're about to use for the next adventure as, as a setup. Alternatively, use your characters, but quantum leap them back, forward or sideways in time, where they take part in completely different events before being returned to their bodies. It's not something they might expect, and so we've fulfilled our mission. Whether it's the players or the game master throwing that curveball, the only really important thing is that everyone else try to hit it right out of the ballpark. So let's roll up some comments from our last episode, which was about the Forgotten Realms, the Dungeons & Dragons setting, with guests Fred Melanson and Jonathan Schaefer-Hames. Clinton Robinson says, wonderful episode. Loved the way everything was approached and discussed. Thanks for the road trip ideas for gaming groups at the end. Thanks, Clinton. Uh, I guess my personal tragedy is that I have more ideas than time to put them into action. Mike Dinas says, well done, everyone, on another very entertaining Let's Roll. I really enjoyed hearing the different experiences you all had as DMs with your players. I'm a sucker for generic fantasy vanilla D&D, so the talk about the Forgotten Realms was great to hear. Siskoid, I know you said that you come back to D&D from time to time, but don't really enjoy the D20 system. So what is your favorite setting and or system? Is there a setting that you enjoy with a system you don't, and vice versa? A lot of interesting questions, Mike. Uh, hmm. I guess over time, what's happened to me is that I've become more and more new school, which is to say there has to be a structure, of course. I like the rules to be as freeform as possible. So one of my favorites is uh, the Doctor Who role-playing game, the current one uh, by Cubicle 7, which really found a way to replicate the Doctor Who experience. How do you play up smarts rather than violence and, you know, have the, have normal, ordinary people, shop girls and whatnot, defeat the Daleks. So it finds a way to do that, and usually through genre emulation, through, through very, very simple, fluid rules, because it, it's got to be able to do cavemen, and it's, you know, just as much as space opera. So how are you going to do all those genres? So it's a little bit like GURPS, but GURPS is very nitty-gritty, very crunchy, and I like it, but at the same time, it's got too many extraneous rules that I don't need. So in terms of, obviously, I'm a big Doctor Who fan. So in terms of favorite setting, as well as system combined together, kind of has to be it. You know, there are a lot of systems I don't enjoy because they are too crunchy, but then I love the setting, so I will port the setting into something else, usually. But to give an answer... Uh, one of the settings that I really like from the offset but found the rules much too complicated was the original Torg. I've got the new Torg. It looks much better. It's something I'd love to play at some point. Anyway, Mike goes on. He says, to me, the Forgotten Realms feel like the fantasy version of Yes And, which actually is a Doctor Who role-playing game thing. Uh, when you when you roll, you can get Yes And <laughs> if you roll really well, just like you can get Yes But if you don't roll so well, and then the opposite if you fail. Uh, anyway, he says, like you and your fellow guests mentioned, it just feels like you can do almost anything the players want in the Forgotten Realms. Be who you want to be, go where you want to go, even though it's still a fantasy genre. I feel like I can roll up a horror campaign after playing a Western-style campaign, having it all take place in the Middle Eastern setting, and it all works. I will concur about The Last Mind of Fandelver being a great intro into 5th edition, and I'm running it with my group right now. They seem to be enjoying it, and it gives a nice balance between backstory 
and beating things up. We've got Trey Hooks here, says, great episode. Fred, Jonathan, and Siskoid, I've only recently become a convert to Forgotten Realms with 5th edition, and those kind of deserve their own show slash episode. I came into D&D with 2nd edition and hated it. It was a combination of not enough players in my area, read only me and one other, and the fact that D&D tried to cash in on the books by making their most marketed adventures adaptations of the novels. So you were very heavily railroaded along the book's plot. I think that helped reinforce the notion, my efforts don't matter in the Forgotten Realms. Most of my gaming at this time was Palladium, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Rifts. A system I hate, by the way, but I'm interested in some of their settings. So that, again, answers Mike Dynas's questions. Uh, but also Marvel. For D&D, I turned to the SSI computer games mentioned here and also worthy of a separate episode. I really started playing D&D in 3rd edition with a playtest group in Greyhawk. Then took a sabbatical. I now run two campaigns for my kids and their friends. One is Ravenloft and the other is Forgotten Realms. What I think really separates the realms in 5th edition is the notion of factions in addition to the backgrounds. Are you a Harper, an agent of the Centurim, etc.? Since the 5th edition, D&D has taken an RTD approach to adventures presenting entire campaigns or adventure anthologies, each introducing a theme, facet, or setting. Horde of the Dragon Queen, Tyranny of the Dragons, focuses on dragons, while Beyond the Witchlight, uh, the Feywild, Descent into Avernus, the Hells, etc. And in each campaign set in the realms, there are hooks and side quests that might appeal or draw in individuals from different factions. The railroading is also not present at levels 1 through 12, uh, and campaigns give a lot of room to play with and let your characters meander. Tomb of Annihilation is a good example. While there is an overarching goal and plot, there is an entire continent to explore with a large city, several outposts, etc. I gotta say, Trey, I completely agree about those early adventures. I wound up trading them away, the Avatar and those titles. I think it was part of the confusion that I said I felt. And let's end with Brian Linton. He says he was introduced to D&D when he was eight or nine years old with Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. But uh, he says, my first real experience with the Forgotten Realms was many years later through the Baldur's Gate series of video games. I've only recently started reading the novels, beginning with the Moonshade trilogy and Icewind Dale trilogy. And as a Tolkien fan, I like the lived-in feel of the Forgotten Realms, but actually find Eberron to be a more interesting campaign setting. I've played adventures set in the realms on two occasions. First, I tried playing through Dragon of Ice Spire Peak, an introductory adventure similar to The Lost Mind of Fendelver, with my daughter about a year ago. But such a long adventure, it goes from first to sixth level, it was a bit too much for her, and we didn't make it past the first session. The second visit to the realms was just last week, at time of writing, which would have been November. He says, my daughter started watching a D&D campaign on YouTube, and that inspired her to play again. This time, I found a D&D Adventurers League adventure, Defiance in Flan, for us to play. Since these adventures are designed with convention play in mind, they are relatively short and easy to digest. The highlight of the session was when her character decapitated a bugbear boss with her sickle. I couldn't be more proud of her. Finally, I enjoyed the shout-out to Joe Dever's Lone Wolf series. The Lone Wolf books were a lifeline back in the day when I couldn't find friends to play a tabletop RPG with. For your information, Dever made the game books available free online through the Project Aeon site at projectaeon.org. I recently started a replay of the series, and I'm loving it. And I hope you will leave comments as well at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Spotify. And if you like this content, think about leaving a one-time or a monthly donation at patreon.com slash 
podcasts. I recently asked our Patreon followers to suggest some of the games that we might see in the coming year, and I can promise at least a couple of those suggestions will make it on the show. So if you want a bit of control, go to patreon.com. So that's it for me. I gotta go. So let's roll. Hey, my friend, attention. Hey.